Jeremiah chapter 50 is our study this morning. Would you open your Bible there or navigate on your tablet? Jeremiah 50 verses 1 through 46. Jeremiah is hitting us with these long ending chapters. The topic we'll find there, where you spend eternity is at stake as God presents himself as your redeemer in the spiritual warfare for your soul. The title of our message, Immortal Combat. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come before you desiring, Lord, to understand uh, your grace in a greater way, to receive your love, and to know, Lord, that your mercies are new this morning as they are every morning. We want to adjust our hearts, have our hearts come more into alignment, Lord, with your word and the wonder of your love so that we can... Uh, Lord, enjoy fellowship with you and share that fellowship with others. And Lord, as always, we pray that if there is someone here, if there's anyone here, Lord, that doesn't know you, that your spirit would work on their hearts to reveal the love of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of their sins. They'd be convicted, Lord, of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come and that they would turn to you, Lord, and that you are ready to save. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Some of you are fans of Westerns, and you might remember a particularly poignant scene from the 1989 TV miniseries, Lonesome Dove. The two aging Texas Rangers were forced to take time away from their historic cattle drive to hunt down a gang of brutal killers. Upon finding them, they're dismayed to learn that a former companion of theirs is among them. Though he hasn't done anything terrible, he has nevertheless thrown in with them. The rangers capture them and according to their code, must hang them. Their friend pleads for his life saying, I was just trying to get through the territory without being scalped. Though they don't doubt it, he has nevertheless crossed the line and their remark to him is, you ride with an outlaw, you die with an outlaw. Are you, and I'm now speaking spiritually, riding with an outlaw? The devil is the outlaw god of this world and non-believers are said to be his witting or unwitting captives and conspirators. God isn't a ranger, he's the redeemer. The really good news is that even though we are all born outlaws riding with the devil, there's hope. A person can repent and receive Jesus Christ and as the redeemer, he delivers them from sin and death to live with him forever. What if a person doesn't repent? Well, then this redeemer is required to act as a destroyer. You'll be left in your sin and die an eternal death with the devil and his fallen angels when they and all non-believers are cast alive into hell at the end of the age. Our passage highlights the role of God as redeemer. God is called the redeemer in verse 34. In his role as redeemer, he would deliver the Jews in response to their repentance, but he would destroy the Babylonians for their rebellion. In addition to exploring these contrasts between believer and non-believer, we can also talk about believers and our ongoing need for repentance that releases God to work in and through our lives. You see, even though we've been redeemed, we are still being redeemed in this sense Romans 8.23 says, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the redemption of our body. In fact, the entire creation awaits its final 
redemption at the end of the age, at the resurrection and rapture of the church. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, repentance releases your redeemer to act as a deliverer. Number two, rebellion requires your redeemer to act as a destroyer. Let's take a look first of all at our Lord as deliverer in verses one through 20. Now the last few chapters of Jeremiah are dedicated to describing God's judgments against the nations that most affected his chosen people. The Babylonian Empire gets the most ink. God had specifically raised them up to act as a discipliner of the Jews, but then they grew proud and rebellious, so God had to destroy them in turn. This first section, verses one through 20, are mostly about Israel's repentance and return to the Lord, releasing him to deliver them from the Babylonian captivity and exile and to return them to their land. And so let's begin reading in verse one. The word that the Lord spoke against Babylon and against the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet, declare among the nations, proclaim and set up a standard, Proclaim, do not conceal it. Say, Babylon is taken, Bel is shamed, Merodach is broken in pieces, her idols are humiliated, her images are broken in pieces. For out of the north a nation comes up against her, which shall make her land desolate. No one shall dwell therein. They shall move, they shall depart, both man and beast. Think of how this sounded to the Jews who were in captivity and exile. God was going to topple Babylon and her gods while they, the Jews, would endure. Talk about something hopeful. Biblical hope is the certainty that God will keep his promises. Every last one of them. You need to find one and camp out on it until you see it come to pass. Even if it isn't coming to pass until after you pass. This life is just a beginning after all. The, the, one of the big problems we have, we have a lot of problems, obviously, but one of the big problems is that we want everything right now. We're kind of an instant culture. And, and uh, some of the, the greatest promises that God has made to you are going to take place after you pass off the scene and are in heaven with him. Uh, we need to camp out on all the promises of God believing that he cannot lie, that he never changes, and that he's going to do everything that he has promised to accomplish. Life can be extremely difficult. We all face many valleys and difficulties, but God has promises for us in each one. See, our idea is that God is gonna promise us, he's gonna get us out of this tomorrow. That's the promise we're looking for, and we tend to, therefore, draw back from all of the wonderful promises about eternity that await us and our glorious entrance there. Verse four, in those days and in that time, says the Lord, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together, with continual weeping, they shall come and seek the Lord their God. Now, uh, this verse leaps ahead past our own time to the ultimate final restoration of both Israel and Judah, who are mentioned, at the second coming of Jesus. Not only would Judah endure through Babylon, Israel and Judah will see the fulfillment of all God's covenant promises to them uh, from all time. Verse five, they shall ask the way to Zion with their faces toward it, saying, come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that will not be forgotten, 
My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. They have turned on them away on the mountains. They have gone from mountain to hill. They have forgotten their resting place. All who found them have devoured them and their adversaries said, we have not offended because they have sinned against the Lord, the habitation of justice, the Lord, the hope of their fathers. Move from the midst of Babylon, go out of the land of the Chaldeans and be like the rams before the flocks. Adam Clark commented, the description that is here given of the state of this people, their feelings and their conduct finally exhibit the state of real penitents who are fervently seeking the salvation of their souls. In Jeremiah's day, the Lord used Babylon as a discipline to bring them to repentance so that he could redeem them. In the future, God will use the great tribulation as a discipline to bring the Jews to repentance so he can redeem them. We call it the great tribulation. It's also called the time of Jacob's trouble, uh, referring to the nation of Israel through Jacob. And um, the idea behind the great tribulation is a time when God is bringing the Jews to repentance just like he did through the Babylonian captivity. And so the, the issue here is their repentance so that God can deliver them. Verse nine, for behold, I will raise and cause to come up against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the north country and they shall array themselves against her. From there she shall be captured. Their arrows shall be like those of an expert warrior. None shall return in vain. And Chaldea shall become plunder. All who plunder her will be satisfied, says the Lord. Because you were glad, because you rejoiced, you destroyers of my heritage, because you have grown fat like a heifer threshing grain and you bellow like bulls, your mother shall be deeply ashamed. She who bore you shall be ashamed. Behold, the least of the nation shall be a wilderness, a dry land and a desert. Because of the wrath of the Lord, she shall not be inhabited, but she shall be wholly desolate. Everyone who goes by Babylon shall be horrified and hiss at all her plagues. Put yourselves in array against Babylon all around. All you who bend the bow, shoot at her, spare no arrows, for she has sinned against the Lord. Shout against her all around. She has given her hand. Her foundations have fallen. Her walls are thrown down. For it is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance on her as she has done. So do to her. Cut off the sower from Babylon and him who handles the sickle at harvest time. For fear of the oppressing sword, everyone shall turn to his own people and everyone shall flee to his own land. The reason for Babylon's destruction was that they were glad and they rejoiced as they destroyed God's heritage, referring to the promised land. In so doing, we read, they had sinned against the Lord. God had raised up this nation to serve him and to serve his purposes, but they became filled with pride. They could have conquered Judah with a humility in recognizing themselves as merely a tool in God's hand. They could have humbled themselves before the Lord, but instead they had pride, they were haughty, uh, and they went beyond uh, the kinds of things that God wanted them to do. Verse 17, Israel is like scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. First, the king of Assyria devoured him. Now, at last, this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has broken his bones. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will punish the king of Babylon and his land 
as I have punished the king of Assyria. But I will bring back Israel to his home, and he shall feed on Carmel and Bashan. His soul shall be satisfied on Mount Ephraim and Gilead. In those days and in that time, says the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought, but there shall be none. And the sins of Judah, they shall not be found, for I will pardon those whom I preserve. Now these verses are rich in dual meanings. The Jews would indeed return to their land after the Medes and Persians conquered Babylon. They would, however, be scattered again, especially after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. But there they are in their ancient homeland today, and there they will remain through the great tribulation unto the coming of the Lord to them when the Bible says they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will all believe in the Lord. Very simply put, the Jews repented and once they did, it released God to act on their behalf as their redeemer to deliver them from Babylon. They, after as we've been telling you through Jeremiah, hundreds of years of striving with his people, of sending them prophets, giving them the word of God, of bringing pestilences and famines and near uh, invasions, watching the northern nation of Israel being taken captive by the Assyrians, surrounded by the Babylonians. Finally, God, in order to preserve his people, allowed Babylon to destroy the walls, to burn the temple and take them captive and bring them into exile, where finally, after all of that, their heart turned towards God in repentance and then God was able to uh, deliver them and pour out his love upon them. Many of you, along with countless millions of others, have the testimony that you were riding with the devil and held captive by sin and habits that you were unable to break free from. Then the gospel was brought to you, your will was freed to choose, and you received Jesus Christ as your savior. When you repented, turning to God from sin, your redeemer acted powerfully to deliver you. You were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Old things passed away and all things became new. You were born again. God the Holy Spirit took up residence in your heart. Things that you could never accomplish on your own were accomplished in a moment as the Lord delivered you. Redemption, by the way, is a biblical term that encompasses past, present, and future aspects of your salvation. It has to do with both the soul and the body, with the present life as well as with the future. It has reference not only to the remission of sin's penalty and the removal of its guilt, but also to the conquering of the power of sin and to the final removal of the presence of sin. All of this is summed up in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, where we read that God, and I quote, delivered us from so great a death, that's the past tense, and does deliver us, that's the present tense, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. That's the future tense. And there's nothing mysterious about that. You've been delivered by your redeemer from the uh, penalty of sin. Jesus took that penalty on the cross. Now, as we await the return of the Lord or uh, our own death, 
in this time we're living where we're still saddled with the flesh, we can be delivered from the power of sin by yielding to God rather than yielding to sin. The Lord has broken that power for us. One day, we'll either be resurrected or raptured, have a new glorified body, and we will be free from the presence of sin forever, not able to ever sin again. Now, concentrating on the present, we've been delivered from the power of sin by Jesus Christ's work on the cross, but when we willfully yield to sin and rebellion to God, we come under its power again. It becomes a master over us. Maybe not, here's the problem, it it doesn't completely master us all at once. We kind of dabble with sin in certain areas We're able to kind of turn it on and turn it off and turn it on and turn it off. And and it's not like it was perhaps when we were first saved where we were maybe addicted or, uh, you know, uh, these kinds of things. Uh, But sooner or later, sin is going to suck you all the way in. It'll be found out and you'll be destroyed by it. We come under its power. Repentance releases the Redeemer, our Redeemer who lives, Jesus Christ, to deliver us again and again and again. And so the question is, is there something, is there anything that you need to repent of? If there is, do it. Turn to God, let him deliver you from it. Now, in the remaining verses, we'll see that rebellion requires your Redeemer to act as a destroyer. Jeremiah's full attention turns to the downfall of Babylon. Verse 21, go up against the land of Merathame, against it and against the inhabitants of Picad. Waste and utterly destroy them, says the Lord, and do according to all that I have commanded you. A sound of battle is in the land and of great destruction. How the hammer of the whole earth has been cut apart and broken. How Babylon has become a desolation among the nations. I have laid a snare for you. You have indeed been trapped, O Babylon, and you were not aware. You've been found and also caught because you have contended against the Lord. The Lord has opened his armory and has brought out the weapons of his indignation. For this is the work of the Lord God of hosts in the land of the Chaldeans. Come against her from the farthest border. Open her storehouses. Cast her up as heaps of ruins. Destroy her utterly. Let nothing be left of her. Slay all her bulls. Let them go down to the slaughter. Woe to them, for their day has come, the time of their punishment. The voice of those who flee and escape from the land of Babylon declares in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God, the vengeance of his temple. Call together the archers against Babylon, all who bend the bow and camp against it all around. Let none of them escape. Repay her according to her work, according to all she has done due to her. For she has been proud against the Lord, against the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, her young men shall fall in the streets, and her, all her men of war shall be cut off in that day, says the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O most haughty one, says the Lord God of hosts, for your day has come, the time that I will punish you. The most proud shall stumble and fall. No one will raise him up. I will kindle a fire in his cities, and it will devour all around him. Pride, pride, and more pride. If you want to get a handle on this, on the pride of the Babylonians, you can read about King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel and his being humbled by God. In a sense, he sort of uh, represents the attitude of pride in the entire nation of Babylon. Uh, He thought he was personally responsible 
for building the empire of Babylon and for the, the um, outward greatness of that empire. You remember the story, those of you who've read through the book of Daniel, he's walking around on the walls of Babylon one day, which were immense, tall walls that were super wide. Chariots could go both ways on them. And he was giving himself credit for building Babylon. And God said, yeah, I'm gonna cut you down like a tree. It was me, not you. There's nothing to be proud of. You're a tool in my hands, and now you've become a tool. And so he causes uh, a kind of sickness to come over uh, Nebuchadnezzar where he, has to act, he acts like a beast of the field, and he's out eating grass, and his hair is growing, and his nails are growing for, I think, seven years until he humbles him. And then, wonderfully, Nebuchadnezzar gets saved. There's a whole chapter in Daniel, which is a tract that he wrote to all the world about the greatness and the glory of the God of heaven. Nebuchadnezzar was brought to repentance. The rest of his nation was not, and uh, God raised up the Medes and Persians to destroy them. Verse 33, thus says the Lord of hosts, the children of Israel were oppressed, along with the children of Judah. All who took them captive have held them fast. They've refused to let them go. Their redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He will thoroughly plead their case that he may give rest to the land and disquiet the inhabitants of Babylon. As a redeemer, he would deliver the Jews and destroy their enemies. Once they repented and God was for them, who could stand against them? Verse 35, a sword is against the Chaldeans, says the Lord, against the inhabitants of Babylon and against her princes and her wise men. A sword is against the soothsayers and they will be fools. A sword is against her mighty men and they will be dismayed. A sword is against their horses, against their chariots and against all the mixed peoples who are in their midst. They will become like women a sword is against her treasures, and they will be robbed. A drought is against her waters, and they will be dried up. For it is the land of carved images, and they are insane with their idols. Therefore, the wild desert beast shall dwell there with the jackals, and the ostriches shall dwell in it. It shall be inhabited no more forever, nor shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. As God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbors, says the Lord, so no one shall reside there nor son of man dwell in it. Now this is interesting because Babylon has been inhabited throughout her history and the government of Iraq, even today, is restoring some portions of the ancient city. And so we're reading here, what we're reading here, this prophecy about Babylon and its complete ruin awaits a future fulfillment in the tribulation period. Now God, because he's God, he uh, sometimes you know, is talking about the current situation Israel in captive, uh, being held captive by the Babylonians, but he also sees the future and he'll just start telling you about what's gonna happen in the far distant future. Now we know historically that the Medes and Persians did come and destroy the Babylonian empire as it were, but that Babylon has existed from that time forward. But we also read in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ in the closing chapters that there will be a, a Babylon again and it will be a great world city uh, the seat of uh, much evil and wicked power, and it will completely be destroyed in the end times. And so uh, people sometimes get confused, uh, you know, but the Lord, he's seeing everything from an eternal perspective, and we just need to carefully read the text and see where he is putting in in this timeline. 
Verse 41, behold, a people shall come from the north and a great nation and many kings shall be raised up from the ends of the earth. They shall hold the bow and the lance. They are cruel and shall not show mercy. Their voice shall roar like the sea. They shall ride on horses, set in array like a man for the battle. Against you, O daughter of Babylon. The king of Babylon has heard the report about them. His hands grow feeble. Anguish has taken hold of him. Pangs as of a woman in childbirth. Behold, he shall come up like a lion from the floodplain of the Jordan against the dwelling place of the strong. But I will make them suddenly run away from her. And who is a chosen man that I may appoint over her? For who is like me? Who will arraign me? And who is that shepherd who will withstand me? Therefore, hear the counsel of the Lord that he has taken against Babylon and his purposes that he has proposed against the land of the Chaldeans. Surely the least of the flock shall draw them out. Surely he will make their dwelling place desolate with them. At the noise of the taking of Babylon, the earth trembles and the cry is heard among the nations. Daniel, taken captive to Babylon, would write of the succession of nations. Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, all these rose and fell just as God prophesied. He also was shown a revived Roman Empire in the last days, the days in which we're living. A final kingdom ruled by the devil and his antichrist before the coming of Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom. Meanwhile, Warfare rages. It's a spiritual warfare with real casualties in terms of human suffering. It troubles people that God would allow the level of sin and suffering and sadness that we see in the world today. I dare say it is the primary excuse many non-believers use to keep from really thinking about the Lord. But it can be equally troubling to believers. But as believers, we like to you know, have our own, we have our own little doctrinal positions and we argue about certain things and we try to promote certain things. But I, I think out in the world, the average person, if you really press them on, on you know, the issue of, of the reality of God uh, and their need for salvation, uh, one of the big problems they have, if, if there is a God, what's going on in the world uh, why is there so much sin and sickness and suffering and sadness and all of that kind of a thing? And it's a valid complaint. We have answers for it, but it is a valid complaint. It's sometimes called the problem of pain. That's how C.S. Lewis referred to it. And, and so you just, you know, and, and it hits our hearts as well when we see some things happening in our own lives. Since it's clear that we are involved in a spiritual warfare for souls, let's think for a moment in military terms. Are you at all familiar with the military concept of acceptable losses? It's the number of anticipated casualties in any offensive. For example, in the Normandy invasion in World War II, the Allied forces knew there would be heavy casualties. In April and May 1944, the Allied Air Forces lost nearly 12,000 men and over 2,000 aircraft in operations paving the way for D-Day. The U.S. National D-Day Memorial Foundation have verified 2,500 American D-Day fatalities and 1,915 from the other Allied nations, a total of 4,415 dead. The total German casualties on D-Day are not known, but they're estimated as high as 9,000 men. Over 425,000 Allied and German troops were killed, wounded, or went missing during the Battle of Normandy. 
This figure includes over 209,000 Allied casualties with nearly 37,000 dead among the ground forces and a further 16,714 deaths among Allied air forces. Between 15,000 and 20,000 French civilians were killed, mainly as a result of the Allied bombing. The Allied commanders deemed those losses acceptable given the overall objective of ending the war. Spiritual warfare still rages on the earth and it will until the second coming of Jesus Christ and actually it will until the end of the thousand year reign of Christ on the earth because at the end of that period of time there will be a final rebellion led by the devil on the earth against Jesus Christ. Multiplied millions of souls will be saved during this time of spiritual warfare. That objective would certainly justify our present suffering as acceptable. God's long-suffering waits, not willing any should perish, but that all would come to eternal life. In terms of our study, God wants to act as the redeemer who delivers rather than the redeemer who must destroy. Illustrations always fail at some point. Comparing our spiritual warfare to military conflicts fails because we are never casualties in this warfare. We are conquerors, more than conquerors as we engage the enemy in battle. But we're unusual conquerors. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8. He says, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are certainly unusual soldiers. Listen to this description of our equipping and strategy from 2 Corinthians 6. But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love. You and I are very unusual warriors, very unusual soldiers, because our victory, and it is indeed a victory, is often in patient endurance, it is in meekness, it is in gentleness, it is enduring adversity and suffering, it is in areas where if you weren't a Christian, you'd never sign up for. But as a Christian, you understand that you are sharing in the fellowship of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Don't think of yourself ever as an acceptable casualty. We are accepted conquerors. I guess what I'm saying is, in one dimension, we would look at things in the world as a nation, as a, you know, as a nation going through World War II, and we would think a lot of men and women are going to die as we invade Normandy. Wives are going to lose their husbands. Children are going to lose their fathers. Multiplied thousands of people are going to be affected by this. But we deem this acceptable because this is the warfare that we're in and the ultimate objective, if it's realized, will have a greater good. 
God has sent Jesus Christ into the world. He is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. In his long suffering, he waits, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. As he waits, terrible things happen on this planet because of sin, because of the devil, because of our own flesh. They're not necessarily acceptable losses, but when compared to being lost for eternity, you you see how the, the battle rages. One day God will be done. He's going to resurrect and rapture the church. There will be a seven-year great tribulation. Jesus Christ will return in his second coming. He'll reign for a thousand years. There'll be a final rebellion. And then you read the terrifying judgment of all non-believers in Revelation as they stand before what's called the great white throne of God. And their redeemer acts to destroy them as they're thrown alive into the lake burning with fire. And so if you and I have to suffer now to reign later, it is because souls are at stake. It's a battle for souls. We know that our Redeemer lives to deliver, but he's coming to destroy. We have work to do until that day. And some of that work is to share in the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ, amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for being honest with us. You don't really pull punches. You don't hold back in revealing to us, Lord, that the Christian life is oftentimes going to be a difficult life. You even said, Lord, that if they hated you, which they did, the world and people in the world, then they will hate us. And some of us, Lord, our problems haven't even gotten to that level and we're already stressed by them. You know, we're not really hated or persecuted in the sense that uh, some throughout the history of the church have been. And I pray that we would keep our focus, Lord, where it belongs, on the fact that you are the savior of all men, especially those who believe, and that as your long-suffering waits, you're calling more into the kingdom. And with our heads bowed and our hearts in an attitude of prayer, let's think about repentance this morning. Let's give the Lord an opportunity to work in our lives. Far too many Christians today are walking around with things hidden in their heart that are eating them alive spiritually unconfessed sins, breaking down our faith, destroying our confidence in Christ, robbing us of our peace and of our joy. Unrepented sin causes many, many spiritual problems in our lives. Proverbs 28, 13 says, he who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. You know that to repent means to turn from or change your mind about something. We need to change our mind about sin and forsake it. We need to confess it as sin, ask God's forgiveness for our failure. We'll be forgiven. God's word promises that when we confess our sins, you know this verse, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're a believer this morning, um, the greatest thing that I and you can do is to allow the Lord to bring to our understanding areas that really are sin and that we would repent, confess and agree with God, turn to God from that sin, 
uh, and return to a place of first love. And so as we wait upon the Lord this morning, if the Lord would show you anything, just deal with it, knowing that uh, you'll be cleansed and blessed. When God tells an unsaved man to repent, he means for that man to change his mind about how to reach God and accept his way of salvation. You must change your mind from any idea that you can be saved or save yourself through religion or good works. You need to trust Jesus Christ's death as a payment for everything that you have done wrong. If you're not a Christian this morning, your Redeemer lives, as Job said, and you can be delivered today right now by believing in Jesus Christ. Let's sing a chorus, sing along with us, or if you just want to pray in your heart or consider the things that the Lord has been telling you this morning, uh, and then we'll close after that. Let's sing together.